I, I do see in the news where I hear phrases like triple-demic, and I, I don't know what to make of all of those types of things. Here's what I do know. Uh, we are receiving an increase of calls for hospital visitation and for families that they just have sickness kind of going through their homes. Um, and so we just want to take a moment before we dive into the Word today to pray for health. And there, there are a variety of things that are going on. There are all kinds of ways that we can try to address symptoms and things like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about looking to the great physician and just praying for the health of the church uh, so that their spiritual health can be increased as well. So would you join me in that prayer this morning? Father, thank you that we are created in your image and you perfectly know our frame. Lord, thank you that you understand things about our bodies and their creation for your glory that we have yet to discover and this side of heaven may never know. Lord, we believe that to be true. But we also know this. In the fallen world that we live in today, in, in the brokenness even of our own busyness at times, or even just being together, sickness can come from that. So Lord, we pray today for the health of those who are ill. We pray for those joining us by live stream because they didn't want to be here today to pass on whatever's been going through their home. Lord, we pray for them even as they're in their living room right now. Would you be where we can't be and minister to them in ways that we never could by bringing health to their home, restoring health to their home? Lord, for those that, that are in hospital right now, we pray for wisdom for the doctors, for understanding of what's going on, for peace in the midst of diagnosis and prognosis. Lord, we thank you for doctors. We thank you for their knowledge. We thank you for that common grace. But Lord, we don't look to them for the help that can only come from looking to you. So Holy Spirit, be now where we can't be. Be in that room with them with a sense of your nearness and your presence. And Lord, we pray this as well. We pray for miraculous healing right now. We pray for miraculous healing, a mighty touch from the great physician setting right what is wrong. We pray that in faith. Lord, for each of us gathered here today, whether it be from the busyness that we add to the calendar on our own or from just the incidental contact with somebody that is ill, Lord, we pray for protection of health as well. We pray that there wouldn't be a continuing spread of virus or infection. We pray for health so that we may glorify your name. But Lord, here's what we commit ourselves to. In health or in sickness, we want to glorify your name. Lord, if it's your will that we walk through illness, that we walk through pain and suffering, Lord, may we glorify your name in that. Holy Spirit, we ask for strength to be able to endure. Lord, what we recognize in the midst of this is we are desperate people. 
whether healthy or ill, we are desperate people. We need you to glorify you. So may we encounter you, even today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you for that. Uh, I was thinking about this season and even the busyness of this weekend, and, and it's a wonderful time of year. It's, it's one of those times of year that, that we kind of gear up for the other 11 months of the year in one way, or maybe we recover from uh, a few of them. But then we kind of begin to gear up for them, and, and families can often be talking around holiday plans and who's going to be where as, as kind of the, the shuffle game happens. But in the midst of that, one of the things that can be common uh, throughout the year is that you hear this idea of a Christmas miracle. Everybody's kind of looking for a Christmas miracle. That phrase has become so synonymous that in our house every once in a while, like if something really common happens, but it's still a little bit unexpected, we'll just say, it's a Christmas miracle. And, and you know, because we all are aware of that phrase. I mean, there's a channel, I'm not going to name Hallmark, but I, there's a channel that like their whole season is built on this idea, right? So a Christmas miracle is something that is very common to think about. Except in the right way. Because, see, we're all looking for a miracle, and, and sometimes we will ignore the one that stands right in front of us. We'll ignore the one that stands right in front of us. So if you were to Google the phrase Christmas miracle, you're going to find some interesting results. There's a Thomas Kincaid selection named Christmas Miracle. There's a, a faith-based movie out there called A Christmas Miracle. There's article on article that is X number of stories to restore your faith in Christmas miracles. I think we're all longing for something like a Christmas miracle, aren't we? If we're honest with ourselves, we want something miraculous to happen in this season. And I wonder at times if the reason that we long for that is because it's a way that we can mask what our actual experience in life is. It's what we were just praying about. What is our actual experience in life? Sickness. Brokenness. Relational discord. Hurt. And I wonder at times if we don't fill our calendar and fill our homes with light and, and light music and and, and joyous times and all of these things to try to distract us from the brokenness of the reality that we live in. I don't mean that as an accusation. I just want to acknowledge I love Christmas lights. But they're not my reality. They're not, my, they're not your reality. I mean, many of us could really easily play a game of trivia with Christmas songs. like Almost like an updated version of Name That Tune. I can name that Christmas carol in two notes. I can name that Christmas carol in one note. Good luck with that one, by the way. Maybe there's trivia that you'll play at a community group Christmas party or at the office Christmas party where they've, they've jumbled all the words to a Christmas carol up and you have to figure out which one it is or they've used different words to describe it and you have to come up with the name. Maybe you're going to play a game where you try to finish the lyrics. Maybe you're going to try to match it up to some kind of image or something like that. But I think when it comes to Christmas songs, at the end of Luke chapter 1, Zechariah really gets out there at the top with the opening line to a Christmas song. So look with me at Luke 
chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. You could preach a whole sermon out of that. I know that because I'm about to. But let's read on. He has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Some of your translations there may say being rescued from our enemies. Verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Lord, may your word come to life in us today. May my words not distract. Pray. All right. I don't know about you, but I often love to figure out who is it that's singing this song? Who is it that wrote this song? Who is it that's singing this song? Who is it that wrote this song? I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but they're quite often not the same person. Who is it that's singing this song? Who is it that wrote this song? We see this all over the place in, in modern music where there's almost these catalogs of songs that artists can choose from in order to set up their best show or to best showcase their specific talent or, or maybe within their genre of music something that's missing or something that they want to kind of bring into that. So who's writing this song? Who is it that's singing this song? Well, this is divine inspiration to Zechariah. Now, I don't know if you know Zechariah. Let me introduce him to you. Because it's a pretty common name. It's actually a name that is common throughout Scripture, but it has a, a unique meaning to it. Zechariah means this, the Lord remembers. Now, I don't know the significance of that to you this morning, but there is a significance to that in the, the timeline of Scripture. For hundreds of years, God has been silent to his people. I, I doubt that the those that were gathered together in Rome felt like the Lord was remembering much of anything. I wonder if, if as they are in this newly oppressed from a different regime place, if they just thought, you know, the Lord still remembers us. Look at the bounty around us. No, I, I would imagine after 400 years that they would themselves tend to forget. That they would maybe even forget what it was the Lord was supposed to remember in the first place. So the Lord remembers as a name of the one who is delivering this message actually kind of confronts us before we even fully get into this passage today. See, Zechariah was a very common name. But I wonder for us today, what are the common things that are right in front of us 
that are evidences of the Lord's faithfulness to us that we look right past. That we look right past. Is it his provision? Is it that child or family member? Is it something in a relationship restored? Is it in some other answer to prayer that we look at, we may even make use of on a daily basis? It's something very common to our day. And yet we forget, but the Lord remembers. Church, I want you to hear this from me today. For each one of you sitting here, each one of you hearing this message, the Lord remembers you. Let that be comfort to you today. He remembers you. If I were to put it in today's term, he sees you. Sees you where you're at. He knows the longings of your heart and he remembers his faithfulness. That's good news for us today. Now God... God wasn't just going to act on a national level. No, he was actually going to intervene in Zechariah's life in a deeply personal way. And it's a subject that we don't talk about a lot because the subject of barrenness is actually a, a kind of a thread and a theme throughout Scripture. That the Lord visits and remembers and knows those who are barren. And see, Zechariah and his wife, if you were to go back to the opening verses of Luke chapter 1, which we're not going to do, and no, this is not my way of trying to sneak two sermons into one. See, Elizabeth was another in a long line of godly women in the storyline of God's faithfulness to his people who was unable to bear children. So Zechariah's wife. Now, to, to suffer from infertility at, at any age is cruel. It's one of those things that, that can be so deeply personal, I'm not sure that I want to try to attempt to address it even in this context today. Because it gets at very base things about how we were created and for whose glory we were created. But it was especially difficult in the first century, and here's why I would say that, because the ability to conceive a child was seen at that time as a direct result of the blessing of God. And so questions would be asked of someone who could not conceive a child. And in their advanced age, this is where Zechariah and Elizabeth found themselves. I wonder at what point they resigned themselves to the fate that they had in life. I wonder at what point they realized that they would never hear their child's first words. I wonder at what point. what point they, they knew that they would never walk a son or daughter to the temple. I wonder at what point they realized they would not have the privilege of handing down the story of Israel to a generation of their own. At what point in their lives did those, did those come to life for them and they realized this is, this is where we are at in life. Now Zechariah himself was from a family of Aaron. So he was a priest from the family of Aaron. That's a part of the way that the Lord established it in the Old Testament. 
He was a part of uh, the line from Moses' brother Aaron, and Elizabeth was also from the family of Aaron. So priestly functions and priestly duties were something that was literally in their bloodline. They knew what it was to go about the work of the temple. And there was times throughout the year when it was kind of all hands on deck. Everybody was supposed to be uh, in the temple to, to be there and be the mediators between God and man. During the festivals, during the feasts, during the time of sacrifice, when they would be there and they would literally stand in the place of the one who was going to be between God and man so that they might take on the sins of, of the nation as they did the sacrifices, that they might be the ones who administer different aspects of covenantal ritual. Now, historically, we would know that, that there were 24 divisions or families of priests, and each one of those divisions would have 300 priests. That's a lot of priests. And out of that, each family would get two weeks out of the year, other than the festivals. Two weeks out of the year where they would be the ones who would serve in the temple. And more than that, they would serve in one of the most highly coveted aspects of the temple. To be the one who goes into the holy place and burn the incense of the altar. It's a once in a lifetime event if you're even chosen at all for it in your lifetime. There would be an honor that would come with that. And Zechariah was chosen at one point to be the one who would go in and offer incense. So for him, this was a day like no other. It was one of those days when you come out of that type of a, a moment where you would be inaugurated as this new spiritual leader giving voice to the nation of Israel because you had been chosen to go in and be the one that offered that sacrifice. It'd be a day like no other for him. I wonder how much of his family was there, almost like our, our families are gathered here today to see these children. How many families came so they could see this moment where he enters in as a priest and he comes back out as a spiritual authority to the nation. And what happens while he's in there is anything but ordinary. But Kent Hughes gives us a little bit of a picture of how special this moment might have been. Listen to his words here. Then came the moment to step into the holy place. Before him rose the richly embroidered curtain of the Holy of Holies, resplendent with cherubim, woven in scarlet, blue, purple, and gold. To his left would have been the, to the table of showbread, the bread that symbolized God's presence. Directly in front of him was the horned golden altar of incense. We read about that in Exodus 30 and 37. To his right stood the golden candlestick. Zechariah would purify the altar, and he would wait joyfully for the signal to offer the incense, so that, as it were, the sacrifices went up to God wrapped in the sweet incense of prayer. Now, that gives us just a bit of a picture of the orchestration of this moment and why it was such a big deal in the life of the nation. A whole service was kind of coordinated around this moment, and there were signals given but it wouldn't just be a special day because of the lighting of that incense and the sacrifices that were going up. This would be a unique day in his life because an angel appeared. So let me ask you this. How do you respond when an angel shows up? 
It might be a difficult question to answer for some. And it might be because we have a picture of angels in our head, like from a wonderful life, where we're, uh, angels must just be Clarence, kind of this friendly, bumbling, waiting for a bell to ring. The angels represented something quite different to the nation of Israel. So if you're trying to figure out, how would I respond to that? You know, Zechariah actually shows us how he responded. It's the same way that Daniel responds in Daniel chapter 9. They went to their face in holy fear. Holy fear. The angels didn't just regularly appear at the temple. That wasn't an everyday occurrence. People of God hadn't heard from God in hundreds of years. And so this angel showing up to Zechariah, he's going to be thinking differently about that moment. This may not be encouraging news for him. But he fell on his face in fear and adoration. See, in Scripture, when a messenger of God arrived, fear was the response because an angel represented the holiness and the glory of God that was white hot with that angel being in front of them. This angel would be the one who could bring about the judgment that God commands. This angel wouldn't have been one who was like, oh, this is a representative of the man upstairs. That wasn't a phrase in that day, the big guy in the sky. Those weren't phrases in those days. This is a representation of the holiness of God right in your presence. I mean, God's character hasn't changed in these thousands of years. There's still a white-hot intensity that his character burns with for his glory. There is still a holiness and a purity that, that is difficult for us to grasp with our minds. And as we'll see in our passage today that, yes, Christ has visited us. And we can have a personal, intimate relationship with him by faith. Jesus is fully human, which means that he understands the, the pain and the emotion, even at the deepest part of us, those, those parts that are hard for us to be able to express, even to those that are closest to us. But Jesus was also fully God. Which meant everything that motivated him, every thought that consumed him was white hot for the glory of who he is. It was his holiness. That's why Gabriel's words to Zechariah when he shows up on the scene and Zechariah drops to his face before him. He says, fear not. We don't have to fear because God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. That releases us from fear of judgment. But it doesn't release us from awe because when we remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that restrains us. And we realize that the fear of the Lord both releases us and restrains us because it is Christ who took that punishment on our, on our behalf. Now what was it that kind of made up the song that Zechariah is singing in this passage as we get back to verse 68? I want us to look back at verse 68. Take note of two words. He has visited his people and he has redeemed his people. Visited and redeemed. God has come to visit. He is moving in close. Why? To redeem. He's moving in close to redeem. 
If you want to understand the meaning of the first Christmas, if you want to understand the deepest meaning of this season, don't look at the trappings, don't look at the time together. Look at the fact that we need redemption. He has come to redeem. So if we need to understand redemption, we have to ask the question, what is it about redemption that's important for me to understand? How about this? God's coming to visit. Would that change anything about the way that you structure your day? Maybe take care of your home? I've seen the videos, the videos of this is what southern moms must think it looks like when guests come over and the door opens and they start running like into the the random back room and looking at the baseboards and all this kind of stuff, right? Like we know those moments where it's just like, why am I cleaning this again? Nobody comes in here. This is one of the boys' rooms. They know it's toxic. Why does it matter that they make their bed? Those are funny moments in life, but I wonder for us as a church, would it look any different in our home if we knew Jesus was moving in that day? Because he's there. He's there. He's visiting us. It's interesting, though. It doesn't say invite him. He says he's coming. He takes the initiative toward us to visit. He's the one that initiates it. Now, when you think about that, you just think, okay, so it's a pop quiz on how clean is my house. Now, I think he actually gives us a picture of what this is going to look like in Luke chapter 19 with Zacchaeus. Let's look at Luke 19, 5 and 9 through 10. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Man, what a day to forget to do the dishes before you left the house. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save. The lost. So when it says that Jesus is visiting his people, this is what he's doing. He's seeking to save. He's the one who takes initiative. See, Zacchaeus in that moment turned from dependence on having everything right, being able to scheme his way through life, knowing the tax code to his own advantage. Zacchaeus wasn't going to look to his wealth to be the thing that gave him good standing before the Lord. Zacchaeus was going to shift his dependence from things that are of the earth to the one who is eternal. And he's going to openly repent of wrongdoing. And as Jesus teaches him, he's going to adapt to that as his new way of life. See, Jesus isn't just moving into the neighborhood, he's not in your city. He's not just in your house. He's there to make it his own. He's there to rearrange your home for his glory as he takes up residence in your heart. What about Luke chapter 15? That comes to my mind as well when I think about Jesus being the one who initiates. Luke 15, 4 through 7. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not have the 99 in the open country and, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. 
How beautiful that we even see the shepherds in this morning's children's program as they leave the sheep behind to go to the Lamb of God. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, says in verse 5, rejoicing, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost, just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now this is one of three parables painting this picture of God's heart in the, in the gospel invitation. But the consistent theme throughout these parables and these pictures is rejoicing over finding what was lost. In this case, it was a sheep. One of them was a coin. One was a son. But what are these images of? Well, they're images of the joy of God in restoring a sinner through repentance. But I'm talking about redemption, not repentance. Let's get to that. See, redemption is what God initiates, but redemption is also the result of Jesus coming. It's the act of providing a payment to free someone or to release them it's not bond it's paid in full there's no return date where we're going to check it to make sure that you stayed in the country to make sure that you you did everything right after i paid that price for you to be released for that period of time no it says paid in full taken care of entirely released freed and zachariah is pointing to God's work in the past to acknowledge the work that God is doing in the present. In other words, God has remembered us, he is remembering us. God has redeemed us and he is redeeming us. Now when was it that he has redeemed us? You may notice that our passage today talks about Abraham and we talked about his story a little bit last Sunday. But this morning I want to look at the picture of redemption because I think that that word actually goes back to the people of Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt. He's, he's actually calling things to the present that are from the past and God remembering his people to say, look at what happened in Egypt where God redeemed his people. How is it that God redeemed his people in Egypt? As they were enslaved by Pharaoh. Pharaoh resisted. And then there was a last plague that came and it would be the worst of all of them would involve the death of the oldest son. And all of a sudden we begin to hear the echoes of the cross that is coming. It would be the death of the oldest son. God provides a warning and he provides a way out. He warns them, this is what needs to happen to be redeemed of this plague. And he's telling us today, this is what needs to be rehabbed. This is what needs to happen to be redeemed from the sinfulness of life. What is it that he says? The way out that he provides is through the death of a lamb. The blood of a lamb over the doorway. See, Pharaoh had been devastated by what his decision, decisions had led to in resisting God. So he lets the people go. God redeemed his people and introduced the need for a lamb. 
same time. That's good news for us today. It helps us understand how some of these things throughout Scripture connect to see this plan of redemption that God has been working all along. And it reminds us of Zechariah's name, the Lord remembers. He knows what he's doing. He's good at it. And we can trust him with our redemption. Now, I mean, that may just seem like, well, that's an exciting historical account. Neat. What does that have to do with Christmas? What does that have to do with me? Well, everything. Because what Zechariah is prophesying in this song is he's saying God is saving his people and he's doing it again and again and again. God has, he is, and he will. We need, he says, the forgiveness of our sins. But what Zechariah is referring to here is not being freed from some situation or circumstance that we just happen to find ourselves in. That's not the plight that we have in front of us. Actually, what we have in front of us is a moral plight. It's far more serious and far more grave than something that might be just thought of as, oh, this is just a circumstance I find myself in. Oh, my goodness, how did I get here? See, sin's an unpopular word, but it's a very Christmassy word, if we think about it rightly. Sin's an un- unpopular word today, but the Bible uses it unashamedly, even in the Christmas story, because what it explains is something that is so profound that it begins to explain the world around us and explain the things that we can't even explain about ourselves. Sin. Now, it may not be a popular word, so let's make sure that we understand it rightly, Defining sin rightly involves letting God define what sin is, not the world around us. I'll be clear on that. In a recent survey, I read that only 17% of the American population would refer to God in any way when it came to the definition of sin. Only 83% of those who would say that see sin as something that has merely a, had a negative impact on their life. It's almost like it's a credit report. Oh, there's a negative mark on your credit report. Well, can I write a dispute letter? How's that going to work? Do I just need to make a payment? What's up? Treating it like a a credit report that they need to get cleaned up. But see, if we think about sin in that way, we'll never understand the Christmas story rightly. You may have heard this at the church if you've been here for a while, but we'll use a line that says this, that the law of God is a teacher to us. It instructs us in the way of the Lord, the law of God, the moral law of God. Can I share a concern with you? I am concerned that we get a part of that statement without the other part. I think that we get the, the law as an instructor, and here's where my concern is. I wonder at times for us as a church if there are laws of the land that we let instruct our faith in ways that they should not. In ways that they should not. We could go through the headlines just from this week alone on some of this. But when it comes to things that the law of God, the moral law of God says are not right, the law of the land does not usurp that. The law of God stands above all of that. 
And so as a church, we have a call to see sin as sin. It doesn't matter what the law of the land says. It doesn't matter what the law of the state or the nation says. What matters is what the law of God says, and that's what we pursue together. That's what we pursue together. Sin is sin. Sin is wrong. It's not welcome into the holy presence of God, even if the law of the land allows for it. So as Christians, we must take our instruction on what sin is from God's word. His holy laws are both for our good and for his glory. Well, what is sin then? Well, sin is essentially putting myself where God deserves to be. Putting myself where God deserves to be. Saying, I have authority and majesty. Even saying that out loud doesn't feel comfortable right now. Right? But we act that way at times. Maybe we have the couth not to say it out loud in a gathering, but man, do we live like it. I have the ultimate authority. I have the majesty of running my own life. I can chart my own course. I'm the Lewis, of Cl- Lewis and Clark of spirituality. See, it's another way of saying to God, whether politely or in an angry and defiant way, shaking our hand at him. I don't want you. I don't want you here. You're not welcome in my house. I will not obey your command. Sin is our greatest problem because that kind of mentality will separate us from God. The God that we were made to know and to encounter, that we were designed to enjoy him. See, the truth about sin offers a tremendous insight to us because it does help us understand the world. It does help us understand our own hearts. And it involves accepting the nature of our sinfulness, my sinfulness, your sinfulness, and the seriousness of sin. Not just of the world, but for me, for you individually. This is why Jesus visited us. This is why he came to us. He's not here to just put the bits and pieces of your lives together in a way that gives us some kind of stability or some sense of holiness. No, he is here to be everything. He's not here to be a bit of a spiritual or religious energizer battery just to charge you up so that you can be nicer to people. Hey, you know what Jesus is here for? So you can be tolerable. No, he's here to rescue you from yourself. Now, the reason that I think it's important for us to see the word rescue and why I even kind of acknowledge that and paused in in verse 74 that we are being delivered. Some of your translations may say rescued. I know the CSB will say that. Why is it important to think about rescue? Because Jesus came to you in the moment of your drowning and he doesn't come to you and say, you know what, if you just try harder, you're going to make it. He doesn't come to you and say, I think thrashing about will be the answer to your problems. I think giving it your all. No, he says, take my hand. Take my nail-scarred hand and watch me lift you out of this moment. You were drowning. You were desperate. Imagine if somebody came along in that boat and you said, I don't want you. I don't need you. 
And what happens in that moment when he takes hold of us and he pulls us out of that mire and pit? What happens? Our lungs fill with the breath of the Spirit. What begins to sputter forth is praise, thanksgiving for rescue. A way of escape. Do you know you're drowning today? Don't refuse the nail-scarred hand offered to you. Grab hold of it. Butter your praise. See, Zechariah is doing that. This is actually after a time where he was mute. I don't know that I've ever experienced a time of muteness. Ask Stephanie, she'll let you know. I've experienced times of being speechless, overwhelmed with something. See, Zechariah, after his encounter with God, was mute. I don't know. It was a heck of a song to come out of a season of mute. Where Zechariah couldn't speak because the Lord is speaking to him. What does he say? This is what's happening. And my son's going to be the one that goes and says... This is what's happening. Now, wrap your mind around something here. Zechariah is singing so that everyone can grasp what his opening line is. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and he has redeemed them.